0: Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show.
1: Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised.
2: They started thinking about who were other isolated young men in the church. And reaching out to them wherever they may be in the world now and confirming, okay, yes, this one, okay, yes, this one. And starting to get a trail together of the victim pattern, survivor pattern.
1: You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimony shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Hey, everybody. My name is Eric Skorzynski, and I'm the host
0: of the Preacher Boys podcast. On today's episode, I'm sitting down with Garrett and Steven Anderson, two brothers who came from a church where the pastor had a trail of victims left behind. This is a very shocking story and gets into some of the heavier material that we've covered on this show. So I just want to go ahead and reissue a trigger warning to you right now. We are going to be covering the topic of abuse. We are going to be covering the topic of suicide. And so if you're not ready for this episode, be sure to tune in at a different time, but you're definitely going to want at some point listen to this interview with garrett and steven anderson remember if you want to keep supporting stories like this being told on the preacher boys podcast head over to patreon.com slash preacher boys and become a patron for any amount right now to help support the research the time and the production that goes into this show all right everybody thank you so much for listening and here's my interview with garrett and steven anderson Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Preacher Voice Podcast. I'm so excited to have Garrett and Steven on the show today. Can the two of you just introduce yourselves and just give me a glimpse of your introduction to the IFB movement?
2: Hi, um, I'm Steven Anderson. My introduction to the IFB movement was mainly through our parents, or my parents. They were lost when they were teens and they had a kid out of wedlock, my like my older sister. And they were just lost and my uncle and aunt had someone knock on their door and asked them to come to church and just invited them to the Baptist church down there, um, in Texas and ended up getting them to come. They received, uh, Christ as their savior. And then invited my parents to check it out basically and. It was like a 180. They did a complete, you know, turnaround, had got rid of all their friends, basically, that they were uh, involved with at the time, leading them down a path they they knew they shouldn't be, and just went all in to the ISP movement down there in Texas. And then had the rest of us, there's five of us, three sisters and two brothers. Yeah. And then moved back up to Minnesota. And that's when Garrett was born yeah I'm the only one that was born so <laughs> um, yeah so we yeah they got plugged in really hard into the IFP church down in Texas there big influences are like John R. Wright the Lester Roloff and they they really a lot of the figureheads there Jack Hiles obviously um, right. as I first pastor they were at we we learned later my parents never really talked about much things that were negative around us so they never discussed like finances around us earlier and stuff like that, but. Apparently, that first church they went to, the, the pastor down there was with like a dozen members in the congregation. And he's right. railing about unwed mothers yeah. in front row. And it was very caustic. And meanwhile, it turned out that he was having an extramarital affair with the college intern that was staying with them over the summer. Okay. So my mom and my dad talked about how their first experience in the ISB, they were so bought into it because they had been saved from a life that was obviously spiraling downwards. Everything that was going on. So they were very grateful for what the movement gave yeah. them. So I think they let a lot of stuff go right. like that.
0: So, Stephen, how old were you when they? So, you were already born when they had initially joined?
2: No, my sister was the, the oldest sister. She was the one that was, I guess you would think, what they would say is born out of web Yeah, She was one, like, she was just born pretty much when they were introduced to you know the ISC movement and then after they had joined the church then they had the rest of us kids so Got it. i'm the fourth out of five and Garrett's the youngest mm-hmm. so they were pretty well into it by the time we were born
0: so for the two of you this is all you knew growing up you were born into it raised yes yeah. so I'm just curious. Was it something where you both felt very positive feelings toward that world when you were younger, or did you feel this like resistance against being in this like kind of strict environment? Cause
2: no, growing up in it, we, that like you said, that was all we knew. We didn't really know, ah, man, we didn't know anything outside of the ice movement. <laughs> we were homeschooled. Like the church was Sunday morning, Sunday night. We had Wednesday night Bible study. We had, We had Friday night youth activities when we were of that age. We had Saturday morning bus calling. Like literally all of our time was spent in the church, around the church. My dad's philosophy back then, or even our pastor's philosophy back then, was if the church's doors are open, you're there. So that was all we knew pretty much until super recently, actually. Okay. Everything that went down happened pretty much and they, like starting to question things about the IFC movement happened maybe in the last five or six years. Yeah. I, I went off to college and became, you know, liberal as they call it, right. but no, we, we were growing up and, and actually the, the church as a whole that we grew up in started to kind of transition. The pastor himself really wasn't enforcing standards top down. And actually, even when he was like full into it, he was a Bob Jones university grad, leather long gym, And. He shifted away from that flow of the and the whole church did to a certain degree. So by the time everything happened, it was like IFB light, (laughs) diet Mm -hmm. IFB, where there was still really heavy conservative ideals in theology, but people would start, you know, women were wearing pants, and (laughs) and, uh, going to a movie theater wouldn't make you a social pariah. Yeah, so that's how that,
0: that kind of occurred. So the church went through a transition, but you guys did as well. So you said fairly recently start questioning. I'm not going to presume your ages. So about what age did you start questioning or thinking through, hey, this doesn't make sense or this seems inconsistent?
2: It was, for me at least, it was getting outside of my bubble. I did my first year of college at PCC in 2010.
1: Every step takes you closer to a destination. Where are your steps taking you? Do you make choices by accident or on purpose? How will your future make a difference? Where will you find your ministry? Every step takes you somewhere. What's your next step?
2: And and then I was making out with my girlfriend and okay. they caught they us. That'll and the, uh, anybody knows the props department of the uh, CAC building or the, the arts building right behind the Dale Ford Auditorium. So.
0: <laughs> good. Geography lesson. There's tons <laughs> of PCC students flocking to that location right now. Okay. Right. Then, okay. So you went to PCC, got kicked out, and then did you go to a different, like, a am guessing a secular college after that or a different Christian college or?
2: Yeah. I'm getting away from, it was some hypocrisy at PCC that first kind of got me to question. Again, the extent of why they kicked me out was just for that, just for kissing my girlfriend, essentially. And they accused me that, or they pulled us before an interrogation panel, essentially at BCC there. And literally questioned us for like eight hours straight. And it got very unethical. It got like, very weird. The guy that was interrogating, me was like, what else did you do? Or did you do this? And it was like, it was odd. It was, and then I went before like the whole panel. The board of the whole college, and they had their their life review, but basically calling my salvation into question. So
0: right.
2: that's what a sour taste in my mouth. Where yeah. I'm like, all right, I'm kind of done with this. So you so, said
0: before the council for this, you were like yeah in it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I think I technically had three thousand denarius. They found all my music wow. and stuff on my theater. <laughs> it was a lot of fun, but no, that kind of sent a sour taste in my mouth for sure. And sure. then. Just, yeah, getting outside of the movement, going to a secular college, you know, here locally in Minnesota, and then I did my undergrad in psychology with an emphasis in sexual trauma, and hmm. that kind of opened my eyes a little bit more, but, yeah, so, yeah, it was recently. I'm still looking at stuff I posted on Facebook from seven years ago going, wow, I thought that.
0: Yeah. Okay. The, the time <laughs> hop stuff is, like, the worst thing ever. I'm always deleting, thing. retroactively fixing myself. But uh, so just before, because Stephen, I definitely want to hear your side as well, but I'm curious, what was it that made you focus on sexual trauma as your study? Was that connected at all to the IP or was that just something you were interested in?
2: No, not at all. Originally I had gone into for business management and advertising. So I was fascinated with the psychological aspects of that. And then I realized I didn't want to just make making money my goal. So I wanted to, and then I, I had an experience with a person who I got to see them recover from their trauma that they had gone through and that I realized helping them through that and being involved in that was the most activated and Christ-focused I ever was in my life. Hmm. And I'm like, all right, this is something I'm passionate about, obviously. So that's that's why I focused on that. The fact that it became useful later uh, was sure. a lot a coincidence. But. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then what about you, Stephen? What was your kind of... Period was it around the same time or was it a little bit after before?
2: Like Garrett had mentioned, the church itself that we were we were members of that church for over twenty years, and originally they were you know it was pretty conservative. Bob Jones, Miles Anderson, we were very involved. The church itself was very involved with those pastors: Bob Gray, Scott Gray,
3: Jack Kyle, So let's kind of uh, see if we can't line something up here. Can I use you? Would that be all right? Can I use you? Bring your Bible up, up here if you would. Is this thing on? Hello? Okay, sit down. Okay, don't sit down. Go to the booth. I like skinny little PA men. Because if they're big, they're hard to beat up. But when they're little like that, eh okay give me some treble give me a treble and turn the bass down all right I want you to stand right here and face me okay all right you got it got your bible yeah okay good yeah yes sir yes sir that's what I thought you said Obama
0: <laughs>
3: Obama okay now I need a, can you can I use your something? Would that be all right yeah come on yes sir. come on up here there you go no you don't need it put it down you <laughs> just stand right behind him if you'll do that okay stand right behind him Okay, now here's what happens. I need a devil, I need a <laughs> Okay, come on up here, young lady, there's the devil. Sheets. They would come to our
2: church to preach very often, actually. Even though Jack Hiles at the time was thousands of members, he still would come to our church quite often
4: to preach. Call yourself, casino crowd, selling your souls for a mighty dollar and publicizing and supporting our public schools with the dirty money that comes from gambling enjoy yourselves catholics with your bingo games Oh, enjoy yourself live it up casino crowd live it up gambling crowd live it up but i've got news for you you're going to be shocked to death because your hour is going to end this is your hour and the power of darkness but sunday morning is going to come enjoy yourself rock music crowd enjoy your dirty rock concerts enjoy your nudity enjoy your sensuous literature your sensuous words and sensuous verse and sensuous music enjoy your adulterous singing and your filth and garbage and rot Live it up rolling stones stone not cut out without hands he will have his day before long sunday's going to come enjoy yourself madonna this is your hour Enjoy yourself, Prince. This is your hour. Enjoy yourself, Michael Jackson. This is your hour. And enjoy yourself, teenagers scattered across this building, that are, that are all wrapped up in the rock philosophy. And enjoy yourself. Live it up. Listen to all of it you can. This is your hour. And the hour of the power of darkness. But praise God, morning Sunday morning's gonna come. Rudy, I, I don't
2: know if they were super close friends, but our pastor was he was a very charismatic Intelligent, extremely intelligent, knew how to definitely work a room. And he was never the type to like come down hard on people, which is odd. Yeah. Coming from like such a fundamentalist background, it was never, he never was like the other typical pastors.
3: Right.
2: Even though his stance on things was similar, it was never, uh, I don't know how you would describe he, it. He was much better at social manipulation than anything yep. so if he wanted to control somebody in the church or get them to change their behavior he would more change like public perspective around them hmm. or start pitting people against each other right right and or basically sending somebody else out to go and do his bidding he he really never like hammered down his authority on the right. church as a whole really even he was very Looking back, I want to say manipulative, but in the moment it was he was just very masterful in how he was making sure everybody was where he wanted them to be, essentially. So throwing up that close to all of those people, and he definitely, even though he wasn't, uh, he was a very big search, maybe 200, 250 at the most on a Sunday morning, it was he was still very well known, I guess you could say, in the circle, and had a lot of connections, but Going back to like how I started to question things, it, it really wasn't like an aha moment. There wasn't like a oh this is this is wrong. It was gradual because, like I said, the church was already trying. He himself, our pastor at the time, was trying to get away from the ISB name. Like yeah. he didn't want to put Independent Fundamental Baptists in the church's name. When we merged with another church, he wanted to take Baptist out of it altogether, and just wanted it. An independent church. So he was already starting to veer in that way. So even from it was his, it was through his influence that we were starting to veer away from it, which is interesting, odd. Most in a kind of fundamental, I guess, Baptist pastors, you know, it's this way or the highway.
5: Right.
2: Give me mean, that old time religion kind of thing. They're right. going to stand in there and right. He was already kind of like, Influence, influencing the rest of the church like basically saying there are problems in the fundamental Baptist movement. So it was more gradual, which was, I don't know, odd.
0: Did he change personality-wise as he moved out of that space or did he operate the same just with a different label?
2: No, he definitely got, he I don't know how to describe it. He wanted to be more of like a evangelical type feel to it so he he started to mimic like other pastors and started wearing like more casual dress on sunday evening and and wednesday evening services and he wanted to introduce like new music and more like southern gospel style music into the church so he himself i don't know it was it was a weird transition yeah he I think what he was doing is he was following the natural path of the way the congregation was going to, just feeling it out where yeah. what would be easiest Cause at, at his heart, back in retrospect, we looked at him and we're like, he didn't really believe 99% of the things he's talking right. about, especially when it came to the IFB stuff, like the standards and whatever it was convenient, you know, to have, let's say like a more complementarian patriarchal system, you know, that mm-hmm. helps you reinforce your power. But you know, with him, yeah, he stopped preaching entirely about standards and about stuff. His sermons got a lot more academic. He would do verse by verse studies through scripture, giving historical context and stuff. But he let a lot of that go and let the church start naturally moving its way towards moderation, you could say. Hmm. And it was something that like my parents noticed. My dad was talking about that where he said, like, "Yeah, I noticed that he Sunday morning would be a fluff sermon, Sunday night would be an academic verse by verse." Um, you know, study through the Bible Wednesday night, same thing, or maybe a little bit of conspiracy theories. Let's talk about the Netherlands of the Bible. It would be, yeah. But so yeah, he kind of started letting go. So I think you were music director up until the very end of, mm-hmm. the, of the church, and then I had left the church, I had not left the church, but I had stopped attending because I was going to college and I was just away from it. And then when I got married six months before everything happened, Tamari and I had. My wife and I had started attending um, a different church in the city. a so very modern, very left-wing, you want to come, not ISB. And that was definitely her choice, which was good. But yeah, so uh, that's kind of how we got out of that. So at the time, I wasn't involved. in then Stephen, you were just the uh, music director up until then.
0: So. Yeah. yeah, no, it definitely seems to be the person, I, you can tell from the college camp i guess the word keeps coming up today in my conversations but you have the bob jones are the more academic i would say if you're going for theology you could do worse than bob jones <laughs> um, if you're in, in actual education and like they are regardless of whether you agree with their positions they tend to be more credentialed than hiles anderson or something like that but uh, yeah not that they don't have their own crazy share of scandals but yeah, so that's interesting because you can see the personality, but it's interesting he was connected with the uh, Hiles, like Jack Hiles, because those guys were the bulldozer. Like they, they were very much like the, we're going to, you know, batter you until you do what we tell you to do. Um, and I think
2: he started to get away from them. Hmm. And, it, and then hmm. what's the time when Jack Copsicle, Sin is just a demon living inside of you. And I can cast it out of you. Like our past at the time was like, Oh, this is weird. So I'm going to start distancing myself from that. And I think that's when I kind of started like going in a different kind of direction there. Right. Yeah, he started recommending TCC instead of Miles Anderson. And then we stopped going to any of their youth conferences or pastors conferences or anything like that after that incident with Scops. And then a couple years later when it came out about Scops then we were like, "Oh, see, we were right." So, that's, that's a big chunk of that is
0: when that happens. So. Yeah. No, I, I didn't. I was very young when Scott took over, and he wasn't even on my radar until stuff started happening. I was aware of Jack Hiles probably around sixteen or seventeen. I started like researching, like what denomination I'm actually in, and found Jack Hiles okay. and all that, and then didn't really know Scott had replaced him until all the information came out. But I'm realizing now how polarizing Scott was. Whether you listen to interviews, I didn't really get myself in trouble, but I didn't, I had a lot of issues with the interview with Ken Scott that he just did. But that's one of the things that he really joined us home is there were people who were seeing this young pastor come in and really try to change a lot. He was really controversial on a lot of topics. But now I'm seeing too, like the pastors that seemed to be somewhat middle of the road or somewhat middle ground didn't seem to appreciate him. It seems like the ones who were like a little more crazy, like the Bob Grays, the Bruce Goddards, fill in the blank. They seem to really latch on even harder than Hiles during the time. Uh, It's just interesting how that kind of played out in the politics of it. But um, narrowing back into your story. So you guys, did you end up leaving, um, Stephen, did you end up leaving the music side pretty soon after that? Or was it something where you.
2: It all. I, I don't know how much you told him about what happened. I left. It wasn't because of anything that was being taught there, really. It, it was all around what happened, what ended up coming out about the pastor, and then about the assistant pastor, and just that whole. What how the church handled the fallout from the, from fallout, the fallout of, of out. what everything, yeah, everything that came out. That was the reason why I left because it was just the the way that the people blamed the victims and how they treated people afterwards was it was just I I, I don't know wrong. Even, it was <laughs> yeah, wrong how they went about it and I didn't want to be a part of it anymore because they didn't seem like they were changing in their ways and then it. Seemed like they were regressing back towards, back towards like the ISB side of things, and I right. just didn't want that anymore.
0: So, so when you say something happened, I think given the nature of the show, we can assume probably the big areas of which something happened. But what did happen, and how did you become aware of it?
2: So, it all started from I had just moved to a new apartment in downtown Minneapolis. And like Garrett said, I was the music director of the church at the time. So I had become pretty close to the pastor. And I think we said his name, but yeah. it was Michael Monty. I had become pretty close to Mike at the time. And I, since we had been there for more than 20 years, it was, he went from being like this holy idol, I like how you know, that's the typical IFB where everyone worships their pastor type thing, I went from like that to ended up having a pretty good relationship with him. Cause I got to work closely with him, music ministry, and how we like work together with, you know, everything that he wanted to do. I had just moved and he had said something about how he wanted to come over to see the apartment. we should have a, a night together, guys hanging out type thing. And he came over one night and we, we had made dinner we were just talking. And then towards the end of it, he ended up trying to kiss me and grope me and just came on came on to me like super strong, like basically held me. He didn't force anything on me, but he held me to try to kiss me. And his hands, like, like for lack of a better description, his hands were like all over me, and it was just I I don't even know how to describe it because it's it's, it's the person that you've like looked up to like all your life, and it. Mm-hmm someone that you never would have thought would have done something like that, tried tried to do something like that. I stopped it and I said, Ask him, what are you doing? And he basically said, Oh, you like it or some, something to that effect. And I, I know you enjoy it or you would probably enjoy it if you just like let it happen basically. And I, I was like, absolutely not. You're my pastor. What are you doing? So, after that whole incident, like nothing happened past that. But after that incident, I confronted him basically, I, you know, called my brother, called at my dad and said, what should we do? Do we confront him? Is this just a one-off thing? And they said, no, you should definitely like come talk to him, have a conversation with him, like the, like basically where he's at. So I talked to him and I don't want to say I gave him an ultimatum. But I said, you obviously are dealing with something. So either like you take a break. Cause at the time we only thought it was just that, like we just thought, we even thought it could be just a one-off thing yeah. and that he just had a moment yeah. of weakness, blah, blah, blah. And so I said, if, if you need to take some time, I don't think you should be in a leadership role right now. Like you need to step down and whether that's permanently or just taking you know, some time for yourself and figuring things out. You need to do that. And if you don't, I'm going to tell the Deacon Board or I have to bring it up to the Deacon Board.
5: Take that as an excuse. Though. No, I'm not
6: making an excuse. I'm just asking you to help me.
5: No, I know. I, if I'm being honest, I would say it was forceful to the point where I felt scared that if I tried to do anything... Are you, are you, are you serious, dude? Mm-hmm. What was I
6: doing? Tell me what I was doing. I remember giving you a hug, Mm -hmm. and then I went to bed. That's what I
5: remember. Like, I'm to the point now where I don't want, like, any bullshit, pretty much.
6: I'm not giving you any bullshit, I swear it. You can't remember anything. I remember that. That's what I remember. I remember giving you a long hug, you gave me a hug back, and then you said something about going to work hmm And then I went to bed.
5: If I were to tell you what happened, would you remember it? Maybe. Yes, yeah, so it started off as a hug. And then you put your hands down the back of my pants. And then... You tried to kiss me multiple times. Oh, dude. And then... When I said I needed to go to bed, you said... Yes, let's go to bed. And then when I tried to pull away and say no... You would, like, grab me tighter. Steven, I'm so sorry, dude. Because you weren't that drunk. Le- okay. The thing is, I... Like, I've been drunk to the point of, like, really drunk. Blacking out. But I still knew exactly what went on before I passed out. And I feel like no, no matter what... How much I drank, and I know how much you drank, that, to me, would not get me... I don't know if it would get a lot of people to the point of not remembering.
6: Okay, but I remember giving you a hug. Are you saying I tried to force you to do something, Stephen? You need to tell me.
5: I never got to that point because I did finally convince you to know. Okay. But I was scared. Dude, I'm really sorry. I don't know... I don't know what to say, dude. I'm very sorry. You told me that you were more bi than straight so is is that something i don't judge at all no but i
6: don't believe that's something that would come out of my mouth but i believe if you said i said it i said it. And you did say it i'm not giving you bullshit steven wow dude i did think there was something wrong okay because the next morning i got up and i thought what what the hell actually happened here you know what i mean so my question is what do i do now I love you very much, Stephen, okay? I, don't, I would never do anything in the world to hurt you or make you afraid. I think you know that under a sober circumstance, I don't do things like that. Do you feel like I was just getting carried away, or how do you feel about it?
5: What's funny is I almost canceled on you because I was afraid something was going to happen. And for some reason, I had been feeling that way... Like, leading up to it.
6: Okay. I don't understand that, but...
5: Just from comments you had made, things you had... I don't know. Why well, does
6: Steven I feel sick? Okay, and I don't know what to do about it, because
5: I think you know that's not me. As my brother says. <laughs> Drunk actions are just sober thoughts. And I, like, I don't know what's... And I I like I said I can't judge I don't judge but I don't know what I mean I will let you know that I did need to talk to someone else about this. Mm-hmm. I talked to my brother and my dad. And what did they say? They're not taking it lightly. Okay. I was drunk, dude. I don't take that as an excuse, though.
6: I know. What do you want me to do?
5: What do you want me to do? I can never tell you what to do because this should be your decision. But I think for a, a while now you've been wanting the best of both worlds, as far as like. So not even having, I can't not... keep
6: pastoring here if people know that I did something like that, even if nothing really happened. do you, do you understand that? I can't deal with this, Stephen. Well, my, my life's over
5: life isn't over.
6: Yeah, it is over. How? Stephen, I'm done, okay? Damn, one thing. One thing? Dude, I made a mistake. I didn't even remember it. I don't even remember it. Isn't that a problem to begin with? Of course it is, Stephen. What am I supposed to do?
5: I know this is gonna sound harsh, but... You're either one or you're the other. You can't have both. And that sucks for you because if you're a pastor, you are supposed to be held to certain standards of things. And that's what you chose to do when you were... when you took the call. Well, what
6: am I supposed to do about this problem, Stephen? I can't even look people in the face. Why? Because you told these people that I... I think that was my right to tell of them. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm not... Stephen, I'm not blaming you at all. Okay? But so how can I deal with this? What can I do about it? I got carried away. I do love you. I got carried away.
5: What do I do now? Do end my marriage? I, I honestly don't know. It's not fun for me either. Stephen, okay, like. okay, I know... What? What? There's, there, there's nothing I get out of this by bringing this up. No, there's... I know. Dude, I know.
6: Fuck. Why did I have to go and get drunk? Why did I have to do that? Steven, why did I have to do that?
5: And what am I supposed to do now? I did... So I did tell my dad because I needed advice. Okay. On what to do. Because I was... Like this, I, 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 I didn't I want to come to church, I, I didn't want to be here, I just needed my father. Of course. And he happens to be a deacon.
6: Yes. So what do you want me to do
5: It's not what I want you to do, it's, I don't, I I am not the one who needs to make that decision. I was already put into this position and I don't think that it's up to me to decide what needs to be done.
6: No, but you know what, you know what, I cannot, I can't live with myself.
5: Because I, of- I know you've been going through a really rough time lately. And I don't discount that at all. And like with Dean and just everything that's been going on, I know it's been like a super rough time. And you having to see a therapist. I'm not saying that what you have been going through lately has not been hard. Like it has been. It sucks.
6: I just hate the fact, that this even, I just I hate the fact that you can't trust me. I hate the fact that something like this would tear us apart. I hate that.
5: I don't know if it's necessarily torn us apart. I just I just wanted to know why it had happened if you had been like struggling with something lately or and i don't think i necessarily did anything to like
6: no, no i would never blame you for anything like that Stephen. okay i i was not i'm not right now i'm not myself okay because i switched medications like a week and a half ago honestly do not but that medicine and the rest of that is no excuse That's all I can say. I'm sorry. I, I need you to forgive me. And then whatever happens to me is just what happens
5: to me. And what do you think should happen? If you were faced with the situation, I mean, what would, I don't know. Honestly, what do you think should happen?
2: And he basically broke down and started crying and said, Oh, like my life is ruined. I don't know what I'm going to do. Said that he would step down. All that stuff.
6: Well, how can I fix it? How can I fix it with these people? I can't. How could I, Stephen? I can't fix it with people. I'll never be able to fix it with my wife and my daughter. They're gone. I can't fix it. I can't fix it because of the shame I feel. Okay, I can't fix it because of that.
5: If I had, and I, if I had all the answers, I would. I don't. I'm just a music director. I don't know anything about what you should do or I think whatever needs to be done should be, I don't know, I feel like something needs to change or happen or it's like you said you're not mentally stable right now. I don't think that's good or fair for anyone involved. And Do you agree?
6: I do agree. But Stephen, that's what happens to me is of very little consequence to me at this point. Okay, I hurt you, and I hurt these people who trusted me and loved me. Okay, do you see my problem there, Stephen? Mm-hmm. I've been dealing with deep depression, they say, for over two years. I didn't get medicated until a little over a month ago, and then the medicine wasn't right, and they switched it. Okay. Now it seems to be right. It seems to be better, okay? But
2: who knows? That was early on in December, January of 2017. Yeah, 2017. And then he uh, told the Deacon Board that he was going to resign, that he just needed to take some time for himself. That Sunday night after he resigned, our assistant pastor at the time met with the Deacons so this was after Mike had left the church. It was that Sunday morning that he had left the church made his resignation speech. That Sunday night, our assistant pastor went to the deacon board and then proceeded to tell them about the years and years of abuse that he had suffered, sexual abuse that he had suffered under Mike from the time he was, what, 12, okay. early teens to okay. him going to college. Wow. And then after that happened, the deacon board initially was—they were like—they they started doing the classic thing churches do, which is, "Are you sure? You're like, was it just a one-time thing, or maybe it was a misunderstanding or something?" And thankfully, our dad was on the deacon board, and he knew what had happened several weeks mm. previous to Stephen with me. Yeah, and so he was like, "Wait, guys," and he actually yeah, so technically he broke Stephen's confidentiality at that point, but piked up and was like, "We have an incident three weeks ago or two weeks ago." And we have an incident 22 years ago, so there's probably a trail. And so sure enough, they started thinking about who were other isolated young men in the church and reaching out to them wherever they may be in the world now and confirming, okay, yes, this one, okay, yes, this one. And started to get a trail together of the victim pattern, survivor pattern. And yeah a few more guys came forward and said that they had been sexually abused by him in their early teens and then he the pastor or Mike was put on suicide watch because he just he was having like panic attacks and all this stuff so they ended up putting him on a suicide watch because he said that he didn't want to live anymore so then one of the friends or one of his I guess you wouldn't say a victim. Yeah. So I, I guess you could call him a victim because he was in a like Mike was in a position of authority, and this kid was 18, and I guess they had been having an affair, like an ongoing affair, since this since this kid was he was, I think he was 15 or 16 when he first started coming to the mm. church, somewhere around there, and they had this ongoing. I guess you would call it an affair. It wasn't like oh, I guess, What I'm trying to say is the other, the kid was a, a willing participant. And I don't know how you want to say that because yes, he technically was, he was a victim uh, to, yeah, so he had, a, he had an ongoing relationship with a minor and then turned adult.
0: He was a minor, minor started adult. the relationship.
2: Right. Yes. And then, when he was put into suicide watch, the only way you're allowed out of suicide watch is if a family member takes you out and says that they'll watch you, or if a pastor takes you out, someone in leadership over you um, or someone who has is confirmed would take you and watch you. And so this kid acted as his pastor, lied and said that he was his pastor, and took him out of suicide watch. And then it was maybe a few days later, that Mike hung himself and committed suicide. Like, I think it was that early February of uh, 2017. So, it was it, Super Bowl Sunday. Super what Bowl Sunday. In. Yeah. So, it was literally from the time that I had what happened to me to the time that he committed suicide was literally like just over a month. Wow. Um, so, then it, it, it just, even though it had already like spiraled downhill. <laughs> fast, it continued to spiral because the church at the time still didn't know that was. the deacons were trying to figure out how to tell the church and how should this be approached. And so the, the actual members of the church didn't know anything that was going on at the time. And then when he committed suicide, it was hard to keep it contained, to not have people asking all these questions because before that they just thought he needed to take some time for himself that he needed to focus on his family or, you know, whatever. He had said he was resigning for mental health reasons, basically. And so all people are seeing is, okay, this great man of God uh resigns from his church with twenty seven years or whatever. Thirty mm-hmm. years, I think. And yeah, thirty years. It was like eighty-seven, almost well, eighty-seven to two thousand seventeen. Yeah, so not thirty years. Suicides for mental health reasons, and then a couple weeks later, he commits suicide, and it, it looks like a terrible tragedy. His end, because they think he just committed suicide because he was mentally unstable, and he very well could have been. But I feel, if I'm being honest, that he didn't want to have to deal with being confronted by it, because I'm pretty sure that if this had gone on, if he hadn't committed suicide, there would have been a lot more men that came forward to say that they were abused by him over the years. And I don't think he wanted to deal with that. He wanted to, for lack of a better term, take the selfish way out and not have to deal with it.
0: Yeah. So how many did come out before this happened?
2: By the time it was around six, was six, six to eight, there was a couple oh, okay. that were unconfirmed. Yeah, through a period very closely following about in the mid-90s, probably from right when he started the church in 87, through to when a new youth pastor took over in the early 2000s, I want to say, who was one of his victims, came back, took over the youth pastorship of the church, and you see a cutoff there where there weren't any victims after that point. Mike had to look outside of the church then at that point. So going back to the history, you see him, like seeking out either relationships or were potential victims outside of the church pool hmm. because if that youth pastor knew what Matu was capable of and was keeping a watchful eye. So right. um, even though he, as a victim, as a survivor, I should say, had
4: no inclination
2: that anything else had happened to anybody mm-hmm. else. He thought it was just him. And you understand victim mm-hmm. psychology where they think they're alone and the likelihood that they're going to come out themselves.
0: <laughs> yeah, Most don't come out until someone else, they know someone else is affected. So most people, mm-hmm. like you said, they'll put themselves somewhere where they can keep an eye or they'll assume it's just them. And it was like a quote unquote relationship, which obviously minors can't consent. And especially in a structure where you're that sheltered, the ability to truly understand what you're doing is pretty small. But yeah. So for the two of you, obviously I mean, you had some disagreements, but I mean, like, Stephen, you were on staff. I mean, Garrett, you'd spent a lot of time, 20 years of your life here. What was your kind of emotional reaction to hearing the news that he had committed suicide that he had first? What was your reaction to all this news coming out when you first started realizing what had been happening? And then did you feel like there was this lack of closure with that? Did you feel like... Was it just so fast that you didn't know how to process it at the time, or
2: it was definitely fast? Because, like I said, it was only like a little over a month from realizing who he was to then committing suicide, and never really having a chance to either talk to him or just figure out what was going on. I still, to this day, haven't cried over it. I've. Some people would say we well, you've spent over 20 years of your life in this church and under his pastorship like that would like completely ruin someone but it was like when when I got the call from my sister that he had hung himself it was literally this feeling of this is going to sound completely heartless but I was good It's like Hmm. I'm done with you and this and and it it wasn't until a few months after that like it, it was until Easter that I was still the music director at the church and it was The fallout and how people reacted and how they treated the victims was just, that was the catalyst that was like, okay, I'm done with IFB and like these people and how they treat people.
0: How were the victims treated then? What was the response of the church to those who came forward?
2: So we had an interim pastor come in and during one of the, with they had some question and answer times because people just want to know what had happened and what was going to happen going forward and all this stuff. And the assistant pastor who had been abused for a long time and who finally came forward and revealed what might had done to him, he at first was acting as like interim pastor a little. But then people turned on him and basically accused him of harming their children and saying that if you're an abused person, you're going to be an abuser and mm. you should have come forward with this long ago. How could keep this hidden and work so closely with him, like all this stuff. And it just turned into hate, just hateful vitriolic type backlash against him and it was uh, i specifically remember being in one of the question and answer services and the father of the the man who is now the pastor of the church got up and said that the assistant pastor who had been abused should never be allowed back into this church and he should never have communion with anyone because he is just as guilty of sin as the being the one who was abused he's just as guilty of being an abuser basically because he had those act those sexual acts with the abuser he's just as guilty and yeah. he's just as sinful Cast the fornicator from Ernest I think is the passage that he cited this nice. pastor was also a fornicator because he was abused yeah and it's it's one thing to have an old an old person, I don't want to be ageist by any means, but somebody you know who has very ingrained IFD theology in their head and may have backwards views like that, stand up in a church and say something like that. And it's another feeling entirely to see, like, his family members and younger people in the church and people you have relationships with sit there sagely nodding along with him agreeing. Right. And that's the point where you're like, All right, yeah, I'm good. I'm done. <laughs> I'm like, bye. yeah. Okay. <laughs> So that was really hard to stomach. And that basically split the church at that point because there were people who, basically anybody who was supportive of that associate pastor and saying that he shouldn't be called a fornicator because he was abused, they all eventually left the church on their own terms and Mm. at their their own times. And those Mm. who remained were. Essentially, those who wanted to stick with that position. And I, I don't want to draw conclusions, but the man who got said that, like I said, he is the father of the now pastor of that church, mm. who, he came from another church up north in Minnesota, and the only reason I, so basically, the only reason why he was elected as pastor is because he had mm. numerous family members that were members of the church already. And so it was very easy for him to just come in and take over it faster. And now I, I would say that church is still as vitriolic and hateful and unforgiving as ever, pretty much.
0: Hmm. Obviously, the two of you left, and I feel like I have some of a sense of, obviously, your feelings and concerns with some of the issues there. But where are the two of you at now now? maybe Garrett, if you want to start and then steven if you want to share as well but what's been your journey since leaving 2017's not long ago so how has that affected kind of your direction what do you what are you doing now and how have you progressed into the next chapter of life here
2: yeah i initially i was in crisis mode to some degree where i was trying to focus as much as i could on other people managing the situation and especially this really hurt people around me and, and you know, and my family and stuff and so we wanted to I, I was just trying to take care of people uh, like my mother was just broken you know. For this. and my parents are you know, highly unlikely they're going to darken the door of a church mm. ever except for special occasions they're very jaded and so I kind of numbed myself for a while six months later it came out and just uh, a bawling crying session in my wife's arms <laughs> But yeah, we were a part of a different faith community. We started going to Mercy Vineyard Church in Minneapolis, and they were—it was a place of healing for us, and especially for me because it, it connected me back to the Holy Spirit. I did—I was sitting in their new member class, looking at the lead pastor of that church, going, "Okay, what am I going to find out about you in twenty years?" I was very cynical, and but I buried a lot of it to be honest. <laughs> Didn't come out in healthy ways. I finally started going to therapy and uh, getting through getting through a bit of that. I finally started going to mentors in my life. I, I never really lost my faith. I'm still a believer and still serving in that church today, and I'm connected more to God now, my relationship is better now than it, it was my entire life, partly because I believe the Holy Spirit was nowhere near that church at all. Right. Um, <laughs> so finally experienced that right relationship, and it's been transforming uh, over the past couple of years. but so today, serving and uh, but it's slowly but surely working through how much not just that event and that incident impacted me but also how the IFB as a whole impacted my self-worth and my self-hatred and my inability to really accept love from myself and that's <laughs> to get too personal but it's, I, I feel like there's a lot of people who have gone through the IFB movement or grew up in it like we did and there, it's really difficult for them to accept that they're worthy of love mm-hmm. because they're constantly heard that uh, God is going to, you may be saved, but you better white knuckle your way through all these standards and be a good person or else God is going to hate you right? and you're going to burn it. And internalizing that from such a young age, it oh. just. I'm realizing now how much it impacted me and it's super freeing to get away from that. Right. So that's where, where I'm at now.
0: Yeah, I resonate with that a ton, that feeling of I saw a post in the group, I didn't have time to comment on it today. But someone was saying what's one thing that it affected? And I think self-worth is a huge part of that and feeling constantly like you're on this hamster wheel of I'm gonna try to be better, but the goalposts keep moving, the the standards get higher, and there's no human being on earth that could live up to all of that stuff. So Stephen, what was kind of your experience? Obviously you were much closer to the situation and it personally deeply affected you. What was your steps moving forward and processing everything that had happened
2: after it all had gone down? And then the assistant pastor had left because backlash he was getting. We had interim pastors, and then it was I think April of that 2017, that same year, where I just decided that Easter. Sunday, I told the deacon board, I said Easter Sunday is going to be my last Sunday as music director and my last Sunday at the church, just because it was two weeks prior to that that my sister, so like our whole family sang in church together, we were heavily involved in the music ministry there. All three of my sisters play piano, I play piano. I was music director. We were constantly doing something with the music program in some way at the church. And so my three sisters would sing together all the time, special music and what have you. But there was one Sunday after, because she had left the church too. And so there was one Sunday after the Sunday morning service that my sisters were going to be singing together again at the church. And I had like wanted them to come back to like sing, or her to come back to like sing at the church again. And the deacon board, they like had a emergency meeting and wouldn't let her sing, like literally for no no reason. And I was like, this is so I don't understand this at all. And it was they were saying it's just going to cause controversy, and Mm. it just to me felt like they were still in this mindset of. I don't even know how to describe it. It just felt, again, like hateful to me. And I just, and I know that's like why you left for that reason, but it was just, it was time and time again hearing people talk about the victims and just what they were saying and like how they thought about it. And all of this, I'm like, I cannot stay here anymore. So I told the deport, and I left that Easter Sunday or after that Easter Sunday, and I still, similar to Garrett, I still wholeheartedly have faith and believe in Christ, and I'm still a Christian, but I have not really gone back to church since then. Mm. It's just, I, I don't know if it's harder for me to trust an institution again like that, No matter what type of denomination they are, it's just like there. To me, I'm still like thinking that there are still going to be people there who would think the same way, no matter, you know, what walk of life they came from. Mm -hmm. There are still going to be people who wouldn't accept you or wouldn't just put, who just exude hate towards you. If you did one thing that didn't agree with their line of thinking and how they, what they believed, so I'm still like trying to
0: find that again. I resonate with that as well. Yeah, it's tricky trying to find a spot where you feel comfortable because when you do see, and for me, it's been harder and harder the further into the show I get, as you keep hearing so many common stories, and when you see news reports coming out of the Southern Baptist Convention and all these other different organizations, and it's very frustrating because. I'd even be dis. So there's part of me that does miss that kind of community and does miss like, Oh, I see these certain people, but then there's also a large part of me that really doesn't. And that doesn't, it doesn't, I'm not sitting there feeling like I'm missing. So I feel like I'm avoiding a lot of potential pain and suffering down the road. And I have, when I think Christian community, like I have very close Christian friends with whom I talk about a lot of this stuff and talk about, faith and, and I don't feel like I'm missing that. So then when I look at putting my, risking putting my daughter in a nursery and going to a Sunday morning service, I just, I can't reconcile the risk versus the reward on that to go essentially hear a live podcast episode. And then I'm going to go hang out with the people I would hang out normally. I don't feel that I'm missing something. Now, if I didn't have any friends or anybody to talk to at all, then maybe I'd feel a stronger, I guess, connection or desire there, but I just don't. And I really, I really struggle with the, and it's IFB, like, I feel like I should really want to go really badly, but it's also from that background, it's a lot harder to convince yourself to. But just really quick, I know, I'm coming right here to the end, but I'm curious, I ask every guest whether they think there's hope for some kind of reform of the IFB movement, and we have hinted toward this, but I'm just curious, do you think there's some things that could happen that could like put the IFB in a good place as in, in the movement as a whole, or do you think that the movement itself is inherently has too many flaws to recover it? Lack of a better term.
2: I, I think at the point that it would need to transform to be quote unquote healthy. Yeah. It wouldn't be the IFB anymore. Right. The, I think the, the beliefs that make the beliefs that are toxic are what make it the IFB. Yeah. So as soon as you would get rid of those things and start stripping down those things or whatever, or reform those things, it wouldn't be, it would be something else. It wouldn't be the church. It persists itself upon basically the what I see as the control of the believer through guilt yeah. in a guilt-based relationship with God, which is yeah. not healthy. Yeah. So I, I don't have any hope for that. I think it's, I, I guess my hope is that it ages out. Right it was unpopular. But. Yeah, I was... Because I've been listening to, like, your episodes, so I knew that this question was coming. <laughs> but I... To me, it's... And I know there's huge talk about racism nowadays. It, to me, it's... that It's basically like saying if we ever get to a place in the world where there's not a racist. And I don't think that would ever happen. And it, to me, like, getting... Some place to where there's the, the ISB is able to reform, it would be an act of God. It would be like it would take a miracle for him to like be able to completely turn it around yeah. because there will always be like, just there, like there will always be racists, there will always be people who believe wholeheartedly that women have to wear skirts down to their ankles and they're not allowed outside of the home right. and that uh, the only there will always be people who believe in those fundamentals that have been passed down for right. however long and so i don't I'm, god can work miracles
0: thank you guys so much i know i usually try to let these breathe a little bit more but like i said today is a crazy day of interviews but i i really appreciate you guys sharing your story and and just for coming on and talking through this and, um, and I say that, but I think that each perspective resonates with somebody different. So hopefully someone listening to this episode who's experienced similar things pulls something of value out of it. I appreciate both of you for coming on the show, and I uh, look forward to getting this one out.
1: Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show... Please leave a review on iTunes and don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. dot com. Save big on Brunch for Mom,
0: all in the Kroger app.